podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Anfield Index Writers Podcast. I am Tom Holmes and joining me as ever is Leanne Prescott. Leanne, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Uh, good to be back, obviously. Um, and to talk about Liverpool in a very healthy position heading into the international break. How are you? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm pretty banging, pretty banging, although I could be doing with more Liverpool this week than we're going to be getting, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, joining myself and Leanne this week, we have got Alex, Alex Barillaro. Uh, Alex, mate, it's good to have you back on. How are you? Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm pretty well. I must admit that I'm not built for title races. Uh, this is the, the international break has come both at the best and worst time because um, it's come at the worst time in that, like you said, no Liverpool this week. So the constant, steady battery of my heart that's just being punched constantly is uh, getting getting a break. But that also means that it just it feels even more tense than normal because <laughs> you just wait for the next match. And I uh, go booking to see my doctor and see how many, li- how many years Liverpool's actually taken off my life because I'm uh, not built for this. I'd, I'd I, what, I'm just not built for title races. I, um, I sat down last night and I was looking over everything and I just went full, like, conspiracy, not conspiracy, but full, like, well, if we win this game, this means this, and then we've got this game, and then there's four games between this game and this game. But if we do well in this game, this means that we can yeah. find a rest players in this game. And I was just like, I was just—it's like it's like Doctor Strange, the yeah, Avengers Infinity War, exactly. It's like one of the possibilities. And then like two thirds, two thirds of the way through, I was like, but if but if Man United beat Barcelona, then those fixtures get switched around, which means we're yeah. away from home in this game. But actually, we're in Manchester anyway. And I was just, I just couldn't do it. Um, it's unbearable. <laughs> It's um, it, it might not be the best thing for our souls or our hearts, but um, you've written a really good article about how we've got a couple of our players who've had to step in in recent weeks and how they've done a really, really good job. Um, and those players, of course, being um, Dibok Origi and Joel Matip, amongst others. So I'm going to let you sort of take it away and we can uh, dig into the discussion afterwards. Yeah, so the article I wrote was basically... Originally, when I wrote it, it was going to be about um, kind of clubs... So I'll start with the line that I used, which I, to me it worked, but I can understand why it doesn't necessarily work for others. Um, and it's, it wasn't a fully formed thought. I think it probably deserves its own article by itself, which was basically that, in it, especially in comparisons to Pep Guardiola, um, Pep Guardiola builds the great collective, the great team that can beat anyone, especially on its day, but a lot of the time, even when it's not on its day, it is the collective. It is the Pep Guardiola collective. So he takes Sterling out, he puts Sane and still smashes Shelter. He he takes well, Fernandinho is the one that can't be replaced. But he takes someone like Bernardo Silva out and puts Ilkay Gundogan in, and and then that that works. For Klopp, and the the line I used uh, was basically that instead of building the unstoppable collective, he makes the collective feel unstoppable. And originally the article was going to be about that, but then it kind of tweaked once I realized the angle I was going down was more that it's because of the understudies in quotation marks that the collective can be so unstoppable. It's because he relies on players who don't necessarily have the game time and still buy into the project 100%. Um, and it was Joe Matip who was the, 
kind of the, the main focus because over the last few weeks, I'd say almost month a bit, he's been kind of imperious. He's he's pocketed Rob Lewandowski. He's been sensational when we needed the centre back to be sensational in the way that most centre backs that we've had always have a blip and always have a, a downside. Whereas John Matip hasn't really been all that patchy in the last month and a half. I I will concede the own goal to Manchester United that nearly cost us dearly. Uh, that ended up being ruled out by offside. That was a bit of a cluttering mistake. I don't put any blame on him for the offside goal against Bayern. I think that was just misfortunate. It was definitely more Robertson's fault in itself. But other than that, he's been, yeah, it's tremendous when we needed someone next to Van Dijk. Um, the injury crisis that hit around January meant that Fabinho was playing there. And although he played well, he's much better suited to that midfield. We, we lose something when Fabinho's not playing midfield. And to me, Joel Matip kind of symbolised the whole idea that Klopp needs everyone to buy in, even when they're only going to be there for certain moments. But the most important part of Klopp's philosophy is that they come up for these certain moments. And um, Divokari was another one of those. The Everton goal, absolutely. But he's also scored against Watford. He's been great in the last kind of two, two or three months, apart from that game against Everton, which he started which maybe goes to show that he is better suited to just having the bit part role and that um, he is kind of the, the weapon off the bench now, as opposed to someone like Daniel Sturridge, who has already had his moment early in the season against Chelsea, that goal, and now is probably second choice to Devokori in terms of being brought off the bench and having a good influence. So there are other names. Lalana is much lauded, even though he's still yet to prove that he belongs in this in this setup, in this collective, and to, to his credit, he did well um, the other week. Um, he didn't do too well against, well, in the last two games. I think he's built up enough credit to kind of still have a tempered, well, uh, Liverpool fans never really are tempered, but I think the, te- the tempered reaction to him is still there. Um, and I, I do genuinely think that someone like Zerdan Shakiri has been vitally important because we signed him to be that weapon off the bench. We didn't sign him to be a starter. Um, and then obviously Naby Keita is a different topic in itself because he is a designated starter who is just easing himself into life at Liverpool. So for us, it's it's working with a small squad. It's being able to place faith in all of these players. But for Klopp, it's every player has a role to play. He has a small squad for a purpose. We can sit there and say, well, he should start, he should start. We should sign this player, we should sign this player. Uh, and Klopp will obviously come out and say otherwise. He'll say, no, I'm happy with my squad. We're only going to sign one or two. And that's because he needs to have them at peak capacity right now in the most important part of the season. Uh, and I know the other article will come through is basically why Liverpool's changed. And I think Klopp brought a similar change to Liverpool where everyone believes maybe the fans slightly less so because we haven't been here before, but everyone does really believe. And that whole doubt as to believers thing isn't just about the fans. It's about the aura of the actual club and believing that they can come on in the 80th minute and make a difference and win a derby off a scuffed shot. Virgil, a scuffed shot come cross and uh, an unbelievable header. So, yeah, the way I put it was the unstoppable collective, and, and I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Um, so, Leanne, I'll let you uh, respond to the article and give your general thoughts on Alex's uh, sort of the ideas that he's put forward, and then we can get into it. 
Yeah, I thought it was really interesting because obviously a lot has been made about um, Liverpool's squad and, and how it doesn't have the depth of maybe a Manchester City. Um, and I think, you know, as Alice kind of points out, it's a season that's been based on people stepping up in many ways. That injury to Joe Gomez earlier on in the season looked like a real blow for Liverpool when you were kind of left thinking, who fills that gap? Is it going to be a Deja Lovren who's susceptible to errors himself? Is it going to be Joel Matip who's kind of had a lot of injuries and been a bit stop-start at Liverpool? So not much was known about you know his consistency and whether he could kind of forge that relationship with Van Dijk that had been so good with Joe Gomez. And I think he deserves massive credit for the way he's come in. Um, you know, as we've mentioned, there was a blip against Bayern Munich with the own goal, but it's not really his fault. Almost scores against United, but it's ruled out. But to respond well and show that mental fortitude to kind of keep going and, and keep having the confidence to drive out defence has been really impressive. And, you know, we've, we've had a couple of games now where Joel Matip has actually been one of the more creative players in this team, which kind of says a lot about where he's at right now and his confidence. Um and it's only when you kind of look at it on paper and you think this guy is Liverpool's fourth choice centre back that it kind of it resonates with you that he's doing a really good job to come into this team. Uh, and I know a lot of people have spoken about whether he kind of replaces Joe Gomez when Gomez is fit. And for me, he doesn't. But I think it's it's less of a. That's not me saying he's not done well. I think he he deserves massive credit. And looking at wider players like Divock Origi as well, who we've spoken about in recent weeks. He stepped up, he's delivered a big moment challenge he's done and put in the graft in training and, and players like Adam Lallana too, who are being commended by Jurgen Klopp for putting in the effort in training, for stepping up in, in the absence of the likes of Shakiri and Cater and making a difference for Liverpool. So I think it's, I'll always come back to this idea that Jurgen Klopp is a manager who loves a small squad. I think as much as people say, you know, he needs to be going out and spending more money and why hasn't he brought in XYZ in, in January or whenever? I think that's what he likes. He likes the knowledge that he trusts every single person in that squad. He knows exactly what role they can fulfill if they come into the team. And that's what we're seeing this season because although Liverpool maybe don't have the options of some of these other teams, Klopp knows what he's going to get when he puts those players on the team. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Um, I think, you know, there's there's a lot to unpack there. Let's start by talking about um, about Joel Matip, who's been really, really good, as you say, in recent weeks. In their last 10, le- uh, 10 league and Champions League games, Liverpool have conceded just six goals. Um, so how important do you think it's been, um, Alex, that Matip has come in and played so effectively, relatively quickly as well? I mean, obviously, we had a few issues in January, but, you know, when you consider that from the, essentially from the end of January up until now, he's been pretty solid throughout. What's your take on that? And what's your take on, you know, uh, how important he's been over the last few weeks? He's been, like I said, imperious, but also vitally consistent. I think um, it also has been reflected by the way he just slaloms past defenders through midfield and then midfielders through midfield. It, it's, it, it's almost befuddling how he, Every game, he manages to pick up the ball and go on a mazy dribble that beats about four players, gets around the edge of the box and then slots it to Mo Salah or someone. It's almost their most creative threat right now because our midfield isn't created that much without Nabi Keita there. Even Adam Lallana is not very creative. He's, he's more just that hard-working attacking midfielder. And John Matip seems to be the one that is the most creative influence, which is astounding. But that hasn't been unique this season. Joe Gomez's forward passing was 
vital at the start of the season. He's progressing. His passing is progressive enough to usually beat a midfield and really get us going. So Joel Matip coming in and not just defending well, but actually offering something on the offensive kind of standpoint was going to be as important as anything, really, to be honest. Um, but it's like I'm not sure if you can really remember when Gomez first went down, but there were a lot of people being like or saying, "Right, that's and that's awful." Let's hope we can manage without Gomez for like the six weeks that he's out, or the four, four to four to six weeks that he's out. And it's ended up being more like two or three months. And if you told us at the time, "Oh, Joe Gomez's injury is actually going to be about three months," I guarantee you, a lot of people would have been like, "All right, that's the title race. Over. That's it. We're going to concede too many poor goals. Joe Matip's concentration is going to be bad." But they forget that. Perhaps it's our folly as well that we hype Joe Gomez, but the fact of the matter is he's next to a colossus in Virgil van Dijk that's taking a lot of the heat away. So Joe Gomez himself wouldn't be quite the player he was if he wasn't next to... who is definitely, as of right now, the best centre-back center back in the world, but also probably going to be the player, Premier League player of the season. And Joe Matthew didn't need to come in and be Rafael Varane. He just needed to come in and be a decent enough centre-back who offered us something creatively and was good. And I think he's done better than that. In the same way that Divo Corrigi has come on and scored, he's averaging a goal or assist every kind of 130 minutes, I believe. Simon Brundage has the um, proper stats there. But it's, it's, it's just about a goal every, a goal or assist every two or three, uh, every two, two and a bit full games. And considering he comes on off the bench, that's not a bad return at all. And obviously, look at Shakiri, who has uh, gone very much under the radar over the last few few weeks. He rescued a game against United in itself, and helps steer that to turn three one. He has been important in changing the system and changing direction. And where Joel Matthews has kind of come in and brought consistency, that's what these ones kind of come in and bring a consistent threat, but without the luxury of being able to do it from game to game. So the, the thing that's commendable about Matip is he's come in hasn't really made a mistake. The thing that's commendable about the likes of Shakiri and Origi are that they can come in and make an influence despite not having the kind of consistent basis to, to launch themselves on. And people forget that professional footballers a lot of the time need to play themselves into form. Um, not everyone can be Oligan and Solskjaer coming on in the 87th minute, 84th minute, 83rd minute, doesn't matter. He's going to come on and probably score a goal. So it's been a testament to Klopp to, to plan all this with a small squad. And he's not the only manager that does it, so it's not unique because Nuno Espirito Santo loves a small squad. That's worked. Jose's always liked a small squad, maybe 15, 16 players he can trust maximum with maybe pushing that up to about 18, 19. The rest kind of are just filling it out. Um, but there are different reasons for Jose. That's because only a certain number of players can buy into him, and when they do, they buy into him 100%. For Nuno, I think it's because he preferred to build a squad that he could trust with his tactical setup and, and not have to change things consistently, because if you have a lot of players knocking on your door, then you're going to have to keep tinkering with things. For Klopp, uh, it's the reason he comes out and says these comments constantly, which is which I factor into my article about the transfers. Oh, no, we don't need any transfers. We don't need any transfers. I'm fine. 
the same reason he backed Loris Carriers after Kiev and said, no, I don't need another goalkeeper, I'm fine. Uh, and the same reason he's backed Lovren before. It's just the fact that he is that manager who needs everyone to buy into the fact that they are unstoppable and they are elite. Ah, and that involved making Joel Matip feel like a million bucks because if he'd come out and said, yeah, we'll probably look for another centre-back in the summer, Joel Matip would have come in and be like, oh, I'm kind of fighting for my place here. I'm, I'm, I'm replaceable. That's not good. What's the gap I see here? But the fact that Klopp says, no, what are you talking about? I'm fine. Joe Gomez is out. We're in a bit of a pickle right now, but once Joel Matip comes back from injuries at the start of the year, we'll be fine. It's going to be all right. And uh, that in itself is as good a managerial tactic as any Gagan pressing or any tactical nuance that Jose or Nuno or Pep or anyone like that can come up with. And that is kind of the magic to, to Klopp's management. I always think it's, I personally just think it's absolutely mental. And when, when fans get wound up, when Klopp doesn't say in like March or April, I want to sign XYZ in the summer. Of course, he's not going to say that. Especially in the middle of the title race. Exactly. Would, would realise that, but a lot of them are just very reactionary. So. No, I mean, we, this, we this time last year when we were linked with Alisson, and Klopp was saying, you know, oh no, I trust Garius. Of course he's going to say he trusts Garius. We've got, you know, six, six, seven, eight weeks to go in the season. We've got a potential Champions League final coming up. Of course he's not going to come out and say, nah, sod off, Lores, I'm getting, I'm bending him off in the summer. Of course he's not going to say that. It'd be an absolutely ludicrous thing to say. Um, you know, even before you start factoring in, you know, how good a man manager Klopp is, it's, you know, it's the sort of thing where if someone did it, we'd be looking at it and going, uh, that's a bit of a weird thing to say. Why, why are you doing that? Um, anyway, well, so, um, it's, it's the sort of thing that Jose said towards the end, which is just, that's the indictment yeah. you need. Yeah, it's the exactly the sort, would say, exactly yeah, I need the sort of thing with Luke Shaw Jose would say. And you would be like, yeah, that's, that's a dairy indictment of all. It, it's a managerial tactic for sure. It's not, I don't, it's not one I necessarily agree with. And I, I think it's, it's alienating, but you can understand why Jose does that. And to be, to be fair to Jose, it hasn't always blown up in his face. It has in the end, but it hasn't always immediately blown up in his face. Well, um, it, it, yeah, it, it's definitely a part of the whole Jose mentality, which works for a while and obviously doesn't anymore. But in the same way, Klopp's thing could easily blow up in his face, and it has done before. Yeah, because he lets he buys into his players so much that when they leave, it hurts him really, really hard, and he perhaps isn't quite as rational in filling a replacement because he's like, well. That's all right. We'll be fine without them. He did this thing. He did the. It's it's almost eerie how similar he did it with Mario Götze and Phil Coutinho, where he said, "Right, they're gone, but I'm not going to replace you until I've found the perfect entity." Yeah. And not taking risks where really you could have taken the risk and then worked on it from there. It didn't have to be like Blackburn because he loves his players so much. Like he was heartbroken at Dortmund when Götze told him he was leaving. Apparently, it was just all day. He was barely talking to anyone and he was just so shattered and he couldn't deal with it. Um, similar to Robert Lewandowski. They never actually really replaced Robert Lewandowski while Klopp was there. They had a Bamiang, but he was playing off the flank a bit and that was more Tuchel. And, um, yeah, the, the whole factor in of Gotta leaving and Coutinho leaving was very similar and neither of them were really replaced during Klopp's tenure. So that goes to show you that it can backfire in ways that you probably possibly can't see because Klopp demands so much buy-in from his players and in turn gives that same buy-in, but it's certainly a part of why we're winning this title race currently, even though they have the game in City have the game in hand. 
it's certainly a part of that reason is because of Klopp's, yeah, like I said, the magic of Klopp's management. Just a brief line, just to say, I think it also helps in terms of, you know, that, that training aspect of things and keeping players hungry because you've obviously got a lot of, um, you know, egos and professional footballers. They want to be playing football. They want to be playing week in, week out, and they want to be the man to make the difference, especially in a title race. And, um, you know, it's, it's not always easy when you're left out on the sidelines or when you're not playing in, especially from a manager's point of view, when you've got fans telling you, you know, why isn't Naby Keita playing? Does this mean Naby Keita's a flop at Liverpool? Is he going to leave? And, and all this, this stuff that you have to deal with. To be able to keep that hunger and desire and block that out from your group of players, to keep them focused on the task ahead, I think is, is really important and something that Liverpool have done really well. Um, obviously people point to, you know, the warm weather camps and saying how that's going to disrupt things and how it has disrupted disrupted momentum and things but I think you know as Alex has said there there's there's something about this group of players where, where they're so tight-knit with with each other they all know their jobs they all know each other's jobs and therefore that translates onto the pitch and it's kind of why Sadio Mane and, and Mohamed Salah are working together and, and working very well this season because although Salah's not been at his best in the last couple of games Sadio Mane stepped up because of Salah because he's still taking defenders away from Firmino, away from Mane and creating that space. And again, I think that all comes back to awareness and understanding of each other's games, things that you develop and you learn in training. And, and you know, that kind of all buys into how this group of players is doing what they're doing. On the on the flip side of that, I would say, just not in necessarily a negative way, but there, I think there are certain players who found it difficult to buy in and what the problem as a player, is if you don't necessarily fit exactly what Klopp's looking for, you can find yourself getting isolated very quickly. You know, there's a few examples of that. When he came in, there are a few players. May I think Christian Benteke is obviously the obvious one, but that was more a tactical thing than anything else. But, you know, uh, someone like Alberto Moreno, who's never been able to really get the game time he feel that he deserves. Um, you know, there are, I'm sure there are other players, other examples, you know, from Klopp's history at Dortmund, where, you know, there were players who were maybe sort of on the outside looking in, uh, or who just would never he he never saw that he never trusted them enough to really let them into his inner circle, which I think is interesting. One question, not a question, one observation I want you to sort of respond to, Alex, is um having a small squad only really works when you can trust the players in it, not just trust them to implement your game plan, but trust them to be fit. And that's something that Klopp has been able to rely on this season. If you look at our squad, we've got you know we've got seven players in there who have played, who've started. Or, or featured in 28 of Liverpool's 31 league games. That's uh, Allison, Van Dijk, Robertson, uh, Genie, and then the front three. And you know, you look at the core of that squad. You've got a go- you've got a world class goalkeeper who never gets. I mean, obviously goalkeepers don't tend to get injured anyway. But you've got a world class goalkeeper who doesn't get injured. You've got a world class centre back who's missed 22 minutes of league football this season. You've got a, a you know a really really quality front three of, of varying degrees of world class, all of whom have missed about two games collectively with injury. You know, Bobby's missed. Bobby's only missed one full game, one full set of 90 minutes because of injury. You know, Sadio's missed two games because of injury. Uh, Mo Salah hasn't been injured for a single game this season. So that ability to not to not have to worry about that. And, you know, as I say, it goes down the squad. You've got Robbo, who's a crucial player who never gets injured, who can play 5,000 minutes a season, bang on, no problem. You've got Genie, as I've already mentioned, who's really, really durable. Fabinho's another one who, yes, he hasn't necessarily clocked the minutes this season, but how many times has he been injured how many times has he been missing only you know I think one or two games in January so you know you've got a a real core of maybe you know seven or eight 
particularly players who you're looking at and going, I'm not going to have to worry about them. And that's really, really important when you're dealing with a squad this size. You know, it's only really centre-back that we're looking at and going, we've got issues there because we've got three of our four centre-backs are like do struggle to play sort of 3,000 minutes a season. But other than that, we've got a really good core. We do, yeah. That's one of the great points about, um, the, again, the way Klopp coaches and the way Klopp trains. There will be an egg on Twitter who disagrees with you, but I think Klopp picks players to be durable to, to his... um methods we'll say but it's more more a case to his, just the way he trains and the way he sets up his team and um how intense the preseason is i think that's the problem with the summer camps is obviously Klopp knows better than a little writer on on twitter but the marbella camps differ so much from what basically Klopp does constantly which is kind of drill them and they're always in liverpool and they gen- genuinely tend to be right. We're doing this for match practice, so you're so you're ready. The summer camps are what I imagine designed to kind of help the group going forward because Klopp loves to build that togetherness. Um, once he took his team, and I think it was the Black Forest because he's from the Black Forest in Germany. He took his team into the Black Forest and then see anyone for three days. Didn't have phones. They just went completely off the grid, and it was a team bonding exercise. Um, that might have been, it might not have even been the Black Forest, it might have been somewhere else, but that, the point is they, it was a strange thing to do for a football team to go completely off the grid, but the purpose of it was, well, we're going to get to know each other better, we're going to rely on each other, you're going to know this guy better than you know your, your wife, your partner, whatever. And I get the summer training camps are basically for that, um, whether they are any good as preparation for a game that's coming up in a week, I'm not sure. But uh, Klopp definitely relies on the fitness of his players as much as he does the character and the mentality of it. And as di- as annoying as it is to say, and as difficult as it is to hear now, that's probably why Nabil Fakir didn't have a hope of joining Liverpool. Uh, and it was basically due to a botched ACL job on Leon's part. Um, and I think Klopp values the character pretty much above all. He's mentioned that before. When he says, um, yeah, these signings are really good people and that's important. But I think he also, he wants players who can be dependable, entirely dependable. Because there's no point having a small squad if you're going to be ravaged by injuries. We saw it with United end of last year and started, well, started this year more so when they had to play the likes of Scott McTominay and that because they just, everyone kept dropping like flies and Fred clearly wore some sort of invisibility. That Jose Mourinho couldn't. That Jose Mourinho couldn't see the man he spent fifty million on. I don't think Klopp would ever spend fifty million on a player and then just not play him. And that's kind of the point: is the fact that every signing Klopp makes is done with purpose, is done poignantly. Even though Zerdan Shakiri hasn't been seen much, we can only think that maybe that's because he hasn't been quite as dependable in training or whatever, or it's not quite the way Klopp wants to go. He does everything for a purpose. He doesn't waste anything. There's no wastage with Jurgen Klopp. And that is important because you need Genie Wijnaldum to be there because he's Mr. Dependable. And yes, he can go missing in certain away games. And these games against um, these kind of like uh, the Burnley game was important, but Genie didn't seem to be there. The Fulham game, similarly, those kinds of games are not where you want Genie. Yet he's always there because he's Mr. Dependable. The front three speak for themselves. Their quality is unmatched. And I think buying a fourth winger, like a, an important winger, is probably going to be on Klopp's list, but I couldn't tell you. The third midfielder is definitely something that's going to be on Klopp's list. 
in the summer. But at the same time, now we talk about Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, who is going to have a role to play in this title run. It might be minimal because we don't know his fitness, but if he is dependable, then Klopp will play him. Similarly, Joe Gomez, Dejan Lovren, and Joel Matip are all similarly injury-prone, but as long as one is there, then Klopp can believe in him. Interestingly, you were saying that, like, yeah, okay, well, no, no, none of our partners to Van Dyke can really put together 3,000 minutes. I wonder if that's going to hold Joe Gomez back or if Klopp's going to say, right, the only way we buy a centre back in the summer, because everyone seems convinced we'll buy a centre back. I'm not quite so sure. I think it's a bit fanciful. It's just everyone usually being their football manager with their football manager hats on, kind of being like, well, what deals can we make here? But I'm not sure Klopp will buy a centre back in the summer unless he's convinced to let Dejan Lovren go or someone comes in for Joel Matip. I think it could well be. He looks at the academy, and if he doesn't see anything there, he'll buy an 18, 19, 20-year-old centre-back, someone young, who he doesn't have to give 3,000 minutes to a year. So um, the, the small squad thing comes into handy there. But, yeah, the durability of positions kind of in Klopp's squad is kind of vital, um, even though... As I said, there are certain eggmen on Twitter who believe that Klopp's squad is going to be broken by his training and that there is no no point to gag and pressing, or even though we haven't seen gag and pressing much, there is no point to intense pressing because it's going to kill the players' legs and it's not going to be successful. Uh, and yet here we are in the middle of a title race, and like you said, we have about six players who've played pretty much every minute of that title race. So it's like yeah, Klopp knows what he's doing, isn't it? Her, uh, um, one question that sort of got one player that sort of got mentioned there, but we haven't really talked about in this article is Dejan Lovren, and he's actually been another player that's taken a lot of flack. But when he's been asked to come in and do a job this season, Leanne, he really has. You know, uh, looking at this, he's stu- he's played in nine games, nine sets of full ninety minutes for Liverpool this season, and Liverpool have conceded just five goals in those nine games. You know, obviously the Man City game at the start of January was not the right time for him to make a mistake. But even if you say, you know, three goals in the previous eight. It's good that you've got players like Lovren who, even when they're not necessarily playing at the best, can come in and still do the job that's required. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, it's it's kind of a similar situation to Joel Matip. Um, I think Lovren gets a little bit more stick in terms of those individual errors that we've kind of talked about briefly. Um, and, you know, he's not necessarily the most consistent. Um, but I also think in recent weeks, I, I don't know if either of you have seen it, it's even little things just like uh, videos on Twitter of him getting nutmegged by Shakiri, him getting nutmegged by Diva Corrigi. He really seems to be a character in that dressing room and a character in training. Um, and, you know, people just say, oh, they're just having a laugh, they're just doing whatever. But I actually think that's a big part of football. And again, talking about this, this small squad and how everyone buys into what each other's doing, I think he's a big part of that because as as bad as some people think he is and, and people really, really dislike Days and Robin, and I think they always will. Um, a lot of other people, and even those who dislike him, will be able to point out how passionate he is and how determined he is to make it work at Liverpool. And I think, again, that's kind of something that rubs off on other players. Um, as you said there, Tommy, I think he's done a good job when he's come into the team, um, especially you know pre-injury. Um, he was doing very well. and I think he could still have a part to play in this season, depending on Joe Gomez and his re- re- uh, rehabilitation after the international break and whether, you know, he's he's up to scratch as well. Um, but, yeah, we've got a group of players here who are hungry for success. Hopefully they get that success this season. But even if they don't, I think 
there's a lot of praise that they should be given for the way they've handled themselves, for the way they've handled the pressure, and for the way they're all kind of together under Klopp's wing and, and, and kind of buying into what the manager wants to do. And um, players like Joel Matip, Dejan Lovren, they may not be the best players in the squad, but they kind of embody what we're doing this season, as the you know as the article says. The, the one thing I would say of Lovren is that he, I put this in the article as well, he's not reliable anymore. He, over the last three seasons, he's picked up nine injuries and only one of them has been longer than 30 days. And that was one that we were told he would be back after a couple of weeks for. He's, his body is failing him. And we've seen, especially in center backs, we've seen this happen where it can be fragile. I don't think it's, a lot of Joe Gomez's are impact injuries and bad luck. Dejan Lovren seems to have a thing where his body, once it gets injured once, it's, it's very, um, what's the word? It's very easily, or I won't say frail, but it's very easily swayed to go back to the injury table at the slightest knock. So uh, you're averaging out three niggles a season with Lovren. You're missing at least kind of a month a season. Usually, I think he averages close to two since 2017-ish, 2016-17 season, it's not good for a centre-back who is supposedly your third choice. Centre-back in that he is the first one that comes in. He's the first change. Um, it's not good to have him be injured so much. That's why I think we won't sign a centre-back unless Dejan Lovren says, right, I want first-team football, and no, I'm not going to get it here, so I'm off. Um, and I don't doubt that that might happen. I think Klopp's lost his patience with him because we've seen Joel Matip be the centre of attention now, and it was very clear Joe Gomez was first choice. Uh, like Tom said, though, Lovren did perform defend, uh, defendably when he did come in. It's just that injury record is not good if we're looking at two centre-backs who are already injury-prone next to Van Dyke, who needs a strong partner. Yeah, that, that could be the only one to watch. Okay, bro, so um, I think we've covered a lot of really good points there. And we're going to go on to something that was sort of mentioned in the discussion that you kind of mentioned in your article as well, which is about the mentality of the squad now and how uh, winning that men- winning games and that mentality is really starting to show in that squad now. And I think, um, I mean, we'll talk about Henry's article. We'll start start off there and, and you know move into the general discussion in a minute. But um, Henry talks about the Fulham game where obviously we had complete control of the game and then... It was really, it was really weird, minor tangent, but it was really weird watching the game back, knowing the result, and watching it on Sky Sports, and hearing Carragher and Tyler bang on and on and on about how, yeah, all right, Liverpool doing well, but it only takes one stupid mistake, and you've thrown away the lead, and I was going, are they, are they prescient? Like, do they know what's going to happen? Because obviously, I'm, you know, watching it, knowing exactly, that was exactly what was going to happen, but then for the Reds to bounce back from that, and this is something that, you know, Klopp himself has said, He'd rather we won that game the way we did than win it 1-0 because it shows that we can do this kind of thing. You know, to come back and force the mistake in the opposition penalty area to get the penalty and then obviously to score it, to go back, you know, to one up. And this is something that we've actually seen quite a lot from us this season. Um, something that, that Henry points out is, is something that winners need to have. Uh, games that Liverpool have been behind in this season. Um, Crystal Palace... Uh, where we were one one nil down and then it was two two at half time and then we came back to win that one four three. Uh Burnley, we were one nil down in December in a 
you know, Coldwood meet midweek and we've managed to win that one 3-1. United pegged us back and, you know, in previous seasons when a team like United pegs us back, we just completely go to pot, but we ended up winning that one. There's more, I mean, there are more examples. The, Chel- the Sturridge goal against Chelsea, um, the Arsenal game where we ended up winning 5-1. Obviously, you know, that one is one that, you know, we were losing at one point, which people kind of forget. And then, Again, uh, this is another one that Henry's mentioned, the Everton game, that we ended up winning really, really late. So, you know, there, there are countless examples this season of this Liverpool team showing a much stronger mental aptitude than ones we've seen in previous seasons. Um, so I'll let you respond first to the sort of that general discussion. Alex, if there's anything you want to bring to the table or if there's any games you particularly want to highlight. But what's your thoughts on the article and on Liverpool's sort of mental strength in the last sort of, I guess, all season, but recently, most recently against um, Fulham and to an extent against Burnley? Well, kind of holistically, it's a testament to what Klopp's been able to do. Um, and I, I think you've written articles about this, this very idea in the past, Tom, as well, that, um, Klopp's changed us as a football club as, as well as as a team. But the only way that the football club has changed is because the team has changed and no longer are we brittle in the middle. No longer is Liverpool, um, kind of condensed to, well, if you make them, for the lack of a better term, shit themselves, then you're going to really just completely unseat them. Whereas now it seems like we have our bowels very much in check. No matter what pressure we get applied to us, we we don't panic as much. That was put down a lot for defence at the start of the season. The XG numbers were all very, very, very wildly touted and being like, oh, look at us go. We are, we are outperforming our defensive XG. We're not panicking anymore. We don't make awful mistakes. Um, and it's interesting that we've talked about the defence already because the kind of two men that we were talking about, Dejan Lovren and Joel Matip, were synonymous with those panicky mistakes, with those cataclysmic errors that would cost us three points here, three points there. And it was the reason you can never really say Liverpool were in the frame of a title race, and yet that seems to be our strength this season, is the fact that we can go and be like, um, right, you've scored against us, I don't care. We're just going to do everything we were going to do anyway and score. And that's how the Burnley game certainly felt like it went. The Fulham game was a bit different. The Fulham game was less kind of business as usual and more, right, we cocked that right up. It's time for some urgency. And we applied the urgency and we got the result. Uh, James Milner was the, pretty much the instigator of all of that. He was the one who scored the penalty in kind of that James Milner way where you just, as soon as you see James Milner's taking it, you go, all right. This is probably going in. We're probably going to be all right now. Let's try and make sure we don't make any mistakes. And and as a Liverpool fan, those last 10 minutes, obviously, like we said at the start of the podcast, our hearts are not built for this. We are not built for title races. Only Liverpool fans of a certain constitution or age are enjoying this title race. The rest of us are all panicking every four to five minutes. Um, and that doesn't seem to be affecting the team. It certainly does. Klopp certainly made comments about how the atmosphere at Anfield has affected the team, but I think the team itself aren't affected by moments in the same way that fans are. I think Virgil van Dijk's been immense at that, but the fact that it's happened so consistently has almost made it a weapon. When Manchester City's weapon is once they start, they will not stop and they'll get on a roll. Ours seems to be, again, no matter what you do to us, we're going to find a way to come back through. And I don't remember a Liverpool team in my lifetime, albeit not that great a 
kind of sample size. Uh, I don't remember a team in my lifetime having that that sort of resiliency in the same way that we've basically gotten our way through a title race based on, as you said, wins, not necessarily against big teams as well. The United game was swung, but we were always, always going to win that because we dominated them. The Burnley game, it felt like their goal was just kind of, it didn't happen. It felt like it happened in an alternate timeline and this was the timeline we were living in. We went, oh, that's weird. All right, let's just score three anyway. Um, the Palace game was a bit less. Uh, the Palace game, I distinctly remember being like, all right, we've got away with one there because that was not a 4-3. That was a 2-1 etchy game that just happened to have three extra goals. Uh, but then even the Champions League, we've kind of been doing less blitzy and more professionalism. The Bayern game wasn't wasn't the kind of game... Like, it wasn't Roma last season. It certainly wasn't Porto last season. It wasn't this massive swashbuckling, blistering affair with goals, goals, goals. It was, right, we're going to score, and then you guys are going to have to try and break through us. And that's really refreshing. Like, I can't tell you how much easier this title race has been, despite all the nerves and the heartbreak, knowing that we don't concede. Because imagine if this was last season scoring five one week then conceding three the next it would have been torture um and and that fulham game no matter what people say we always knew kind of well right babble scored the least enthusiastic goal i've ever seen anyone score i genuinely thought for a second he was considering pulling away and being and faking injury and being like oh no i've gone down i'm sorry um just to, just to stop himself from scoring that goal well, he still kind of figured, like, well, I still believe in this Liverpool team. We've still got this. Just as a just as a brief sidebar, I don't know why anyone thinks Newcastle are going to make it difficult for us. Like, they're going to be 100% nailed on mathematically safe. You think Rafa Benitez is going to do anything other than roll out the welcome carpet and smile at the cameras when everyone when anyone asks him if he wants Liverpool to win the league? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just happening, isn't it? It's just. The, the double agents we've got. I mean, I, I know that Brendan Trent will, will yeah. be so satisfied if he stops Manchester City from winning the title. I guarantee yeah. you. Because we don't have to play Leicester again. So it's just it's just Brendan there being like, yep, see that Liverpool title? That's because of me. Big smile. And Rafa think, would be yeah. less less gluttonous and less uh, annoying about it. He would just be like, yeah, oh, Liverpool could win a title. Is your team going to be... Uh, up for a fight today, and Rafa says, "Of course, I'm a football manager," and then gives that odd little, that that cheeky little <laughs> grin at the camera. I, I can imagine, I can imagine Rafa, I can about. imagine Rafa literally. If I can imagine, if we win the title in that game, I can imagine literally seeing Rafa in bars with Liverpool fans afterwards, like celebrating it. Like that's the sort no, of. That I, I genuinely don't think there's anyone in the Premier League who doesn't currently play for Liverpool Football Club who wants to win, who wants us to win the league, more than Rafa Benitez. Well, based I, I on think Evans, maybe Julian's Peroni because I think if anyone deserves a medal, <laughs> who it hasn't been an Liverpool kit so far this season, it's Julian's Peroni. But no, other than that, I think Rafa is definitely in line for a bit of an honorary medal. Should uh, should Liverpool get past Newcastle? And a long way to go, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, so Liam, what's your what's your take on all of it? Are there any moments that really stand out for you as being the sort of moments when you looked at it and when this team has changed? Because obviously, you know, it's easy for us to sort of sit here in March over the course of a season and go, yeah, this Liverpool team, they're not mentally weak anymore. But are there any sort of, for you, any really sort of pivotal moments where you look back and go, that the mentality has really shifted in this side, even in the last sort of six to 12 months? 
think it's it's kind of interesting when you look at mentality and you look at Liverpool because obviously a, a lot of people had pegged this Liverpool side to be quite kind of soft in terms of mentality because of the fact that we didn't really have any experience in terms of the title race, especially when you're going against the likes of you know Man City and okay they've fallen away this season, but the likes of Chelsea as well they've got kind of serial winners in that side some of them. Um, and, and, and with that comes a lot more experience and a lot more know-how in terms of how to approach it. Um, but I think, you know, that, that kind of makes it all the more impressive of how Liverpool have approached this task because, okay, we've had a couple of wobbles after, you know, international breaks and warm weather camps and things, but the whole way we've approached the task, for me at least, has been really impressive. And, and in instances where things look to have gone flat, like pre-Bayern, we've come out and we've kind of, We've hit the ground running and we've, we've shown people actually we are a really good team. So I think, you know, the, the way that this team are able to kind of rally themselves when things maybe aren't going quite right or maybe when we've stuttered and to get back in, into kind of hit top gear again has been really impressive. And a lot of our results as well, we've, we've kind of turned things around. You look at the Fulham result. Um, when that equaliser goes in in previous seasons, we probably drop our head. We draw, we lose. Something happens there. And it's a, you know, it's a pivotal moment in the season. But this time we're able to, okay, you know, we get a penalty, but we're able to keep going, keep plugging away. And we've seen that time and time again this season. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I mean, for me, it was that Burnley and Everton kind of back to back. So, you know, first for Divo Carigi to score the goal he scores against Everton. And then for us to go like three days later and immediately go 1-0 down to a nonsense Burnley goal. For us to come back and win 3-1, I mean, if, if at the start of the season you'd said, oh yeah, Burnley score first in both games against us, but we beat them both times, I'd have been like, really? Like, on an angle of 6-2 as well. Yeah, on a 6-3. But, but yeah, like... Oh yeah, 6-3, that's why they scored, yeah. No, wait, 7-3. 7-3. God's sake, yeah. yeah. Right. I, 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 I often always forget that those last two Burnley goals, those last two goals in that last Burnley game just kind of feel yeah. surreal to me. Yeah, like, I didn't feel like that happened. They felt like that was the after credit scene. It's like you said, it's like with the Palace win. It doesn't feel like that was actually the result, but somehow that was actually the result. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like you like you said, Tom, who would have thought we'd go from, right, we're the team that beat Roma, we smacked Roma, we smacked Porto, we smacked on the way to a Champions League final, and the Premier League title run is being based off 1-0, 2-0, 2-1 wins at Fulham. For, well, the 4-2 and 4-3 results kind of defy that but these kind of greedy edged out results the kind of like the one nils at Huddersfield the one nil at Brighton the results where you just need the most salad goal and then shut up shop and like my well, my question to both of you and, and well to you first time is what what do you think has been the triggering factor because personally I think as good as Van Dyke is um I think the fact that we've had a stable midfield that hasn't been able to, or that hasn't been broken up by injury or been kind of rotated endlessly has been the most important factor. Others will probably say Allison and having a reliable man between the sticks is definitely kind of the point, but actually having a proper defensive midfield structure for me has been kind of extremely important in stopping people running it out of defence. I think there's a few things to be fair. I think the first thing to note is that yeah, it's hit, it's sort of peaked this season, but it has been going on for like a while. 
Like, I feel like our mental strength has gradually been getting better and better throughout Klopp's era. I think a lot of that is what you were talking about earlier, about Klopp just talking to players, getting in players' heads a bit more, making players feel a bit more comfortable, just making players a bit less error-prone as well. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm not going to say that buying quality players who are calm, like Van Dijk and Allison doesn't massively help, because it does. And getting sort of the same set of players playing week in, week out also helps, because people get a bit more familiar, and that sort of makes them feel a bit more confident. But I genuinely think, you know, it is it is a combination of all those factors. And I think weirdly, you know, what there was obviously it's it's puff it's puff nonsense, but people say like, Oh yeah, Liverpool came out of that Kiev result with a determination to do better next season or like a determination to win. And I think that kind of thing kinda of says a lot about Klopp's reactions much than they are with the players. And I think it's kind of it has been a gradual thing, and I think it needed something like Kiev to really sort of put a fire under them and say, you know what, we are good enough to win these things. And that's a lot of it is down to Klopp, a lot of it is down to the players, but I think a lot of it is just down to natural progression, a team that is genuinely feeling confident and knows that they're good enough. And, you know, a lot of a lot of mentality does come down to confidence, for me at least. Uh, I'll, I'll see if Leanne's got anything different to say on that. Yeah, I think, you know, you're completely right when you look at players like Van Dijk and their, their influence in terms of their authority and their, their kind of confidence, which goes around to the rest of the team. We, we touched on it earlier in terms of the, you know, the passion of the players and how much they want to, to succeed. And I think that kind of buys into this idea that Liverpool have got a, a much better and much healthier mentality than they did and a, a much more strong mental case as well because, you know, as we kind of alluded to, the heads don't drop anymore. It's that being fans, that being manager, that being players, none of us drop our heads when Liverpool go down. I think there's there's obviously going to be inevitable frustration when we're not playing well or when something's not going our way. But we know within ourselves that we've got that fortitude to come back. We know that there's going to be chances for us. We know we're going to create something. And I think players like Van Dyke, players like Alisson, who are able to communicate and able to kind of exude a sense of calm on others in the face of that adversity, in the face of things not going your way, it's something that Liverpool have definitely progressed and, and I think they'll only continue to progress when, when new players come in in the summer or next January and, and Klopp kind of looks to hopefully get more experience or players who, who are very communicative within that squad as well. Yeah, I completely there, agree with all of that. There's also a line from um, Henry's article that I wanted to, or it's all, it's paragraph, pretty much. Been on. Um, he says the ability to win matches in an ugly fashion is an art, contrary to those lazy enough to put it simply down to good luck. This wasn't the first time Liverpool ground out three points despite not clicking this season, and this newfound skill has given them a good chance of arguably the greatest achievement of the club's history. This isn't something that's just going to go away. Alright, catastrophe aside, Liverpool aren't going to get players poached by big clubs this season. Uh, we saw the link from Real Madrid to Sadio Mane, we know Zidane likes him as a player. That's fine. He's probably still not going to leave. We are into... I don't want to curse this, but if all goes well, we will be into the Champions League semi-finals for the second year straight. We are a side that is now considered to be one of the four most feared teams in, in the world, I would say. It's us, Manchester City, Barcelona and Juventus. Uh, it is kind of uncharted territory for if you're me, if you're a 22-year-old Liverpool fan, because you haven't been in the situation. Even, I, I, like, I remember 2005 and 2006 relatively vaguely, but I don't remember Liverpool being feared in the same way they were feared now. Rafa was great, but it seemed like 
the Milan teams, the Chelsea teams, the Real Madrid teams of that era were far more feared than us. Whereas now we feel like we are kind of on top of the world and that's an amazing feeling. And it will continue. Like this is a skill, as as Henry says, it's not luck. It's not like next season we're going to have uh, all the luck's going to go away. We're not going to win these. We haven't gotten lucky in many of these matches. In fact, we've had about as much luck go against us as luck go for us. Okay, you've got that, that James Milner offside goal from a few weeks ago, but at the same time, Allison's goal should, uh, Allison basically should have had, should have been fouled against Burnley. Okay, we ended up winning that match, but either way, these decisions go against you and they go for you. The fact is, we have got resolve now, resolve that we haven't had at Liverpool forever. And like Tom said, it's, it's natural progression. When Van Dyke arrived, our defence was already getting better because of the way it was set up. Genie playing every match is not a coincidence. He is very important to the way our defensive midfield structures to stop counterattacks, but essentially to stop the mistakes of old. Klopp has learned from the history. If we lose this title, it is not because we've bottled it. No team will have bottled it. If we beat City, it's not because they've bottled it. Spurs haven't bottled it this year. They got to third in a title race that was basically between two of the points-wise greatest teams in Premier League history. This is not, there is not panic stations. Just in the same way that Van Dyke and Milner didn't panic when they conceded a goal to Fulham, we shouldn't panic if we don't win this title. We will be up there again next season because we have built this skill. It's not luck. It is genuinely a skill. And that is the most kind of pleasing thing of them all. If we lose to City, it's because they are a generational team that is just unbelievable. But next season, we will be up there again and maybe we'll win it. That's not to put any downer on our chances this season because we are two points clear, even though they have a game in hand. Uh, and there is still a lot of points to fight for, but it is just nice to be able to discuss this without having to be, well, Luis Suarez will leave, and then what? Raheem Sterling will leave, and then what? Fernando Torres will leave, and then what? It's nice to be able to say, right, even if, even if Salah leaves, which he won't, we'll be fine. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think one more thing I want to add on this is I think the, the 4-1 defeat to Spurs for me was an absolute watershed moment because we said it at the time. Like, you know, we said it at the time after that Spurs game. We can't have performances and results like this anymore. Something has to change. And since then, something has changed. We haven't had any performances or results like that since. We really just, we just haven't. We haven't been taken apart by a top team since. You know, you look at the defeats we've had since then. They've all been either narrow or they've been really frustrating but still not huge. You know, I think... I think the 3-1 defeat to Madrid is probably like the biggest re- defeat we've had. And that was down to goalkeeping errors. You know, that no teams have really been able to take us apart since that Spurs game because we found a way to make it impossible for them to do so. Um, and I, I think I, I think we're in a really good space. I, I completely agree with everything you said, Alex. I think we are in a really, really good space moving forward. And I think that's a really nice positive note to end this pod on. Um, so, uh, Alex, I will let you plug first then. Is there anything you've got out at the moment you want to talk about? Um, I'll have another article out soon-ish, a transfers article. Well done, Tom. You managed to keep me from talking about dead good European players for a good 60 minutes. I'm impressed. Well done. I, it, my, my hosting skills have somewhat improved uh, over the last year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, since you first did this and you could, couldn't stop me from ranting tangentially. Um, yeah, I, I will have another article probably about some dead good foreign lads up on Anfield Index soon. I will uh, also check out 
if you're into pro wrestling, WrestleMania is coming up. Me and the boys from Pro Wrestling Index did a podcast. Check that out. Uh, basically, it was a fantasy WrestleMania booking card and how much of that is realistic and then basically going, comparing our cards to what they're doing. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll be writing some more stuff in the coming week or two, I believe. Uh, so yeah, stay tuned for that on my Twitter feed. Cool. And Leanne, is there anything you've got to plug? Yeah, so I'll be doing a couple of pieces myself on um, like the run-in and, and what Liverpool have to do to, to try and you know win win the Premier League. Obviously, it's kind of out of out of our hands at the moment with City having that game in hand. But kind of looking at where the where the pitfalls and where the the triumphs could be in the season, because obviously it's been a season of twists and turns. It's been a season of kind of the unexpected results in many ways. So looking to see if that's a possibility. Um, and then maybe a couple of articles just kind of really reinforcing how well this Liverpool team is doing and, and kind of historically how well they're performing. Um, so there'll be a couple of things out for me, but probably next week for that, because I've got a very, very busy schedule at the moment. Yeah, and as for me, I've got an article out at the moment called Seven Games from Glory, which is basically kind of a nice international breaks are a good point to sort of stop and look back at where you are sort of over the last couple of months and looking ahead to the next sort of couple of months. Um, so sort of just, yeah, just looking at the final sort of couple of months of the season, looking where we need to focus, where we've maybe got things a little bit easier, that kind of thing. Um, but thank you very much for coming on, guys. It was always great to have you on, Alex, and obviously Leanne. Uh, it's always good to work with you on this sort of thing. And thank you so much, Nina, for recording. And thank you very much for listening, guys. Uh, we will be back next week. See you then. Podcast Network.